The game of Clue is one of my favorite games. Uh, I like the, uh, the little weapons and the rooms. I was trying to think of creative things. I do at least have some police tape here that I put out. To, I was thinking of doing a chalk outline on the platform, but I was pretty sure Steve wouldn't, be, wouldn't appreciate that. But the, you know, there's something intriguing about this sort of detective kind of game. Uh, if you're not familiar with the game of Clue, you have, uh, it's, it takes place in a mansion, and there are nine rooms in which the, you're trying to figure out the crime, the crime that took place. Mr. Body has been killed. And um, you, you, uh, you go through the rooms, and uh, you have to find out what room the crime was committed and who did it and with what weapon. And uh, the game of Clue was invented in 1949 by uh, an English gentleman who was uh, assistant to a solicitor and also a part-time clown. And uh, in, in, Clu- in, in Great Britain, I don't know what that means, but anyway, in Great Britain, the game is called Cluedo. And uh, it's still called that, and that was the original title, and then it came to America shortened just to Clue. But, but the object is to discover the suspect, the weapon, and the room. And uh, so you get to the end of the play, and you've, you've eliminated all these things, and you get to the end, and if you, if you think you know what's going on, you say, I'd like to make an accusation. And you might say it was Mr. Green in the billiard room with the candlestick. And if you're right, you win the game. Now, you know, with all these classic games, they're continually coming out with newer versions of them. I'm, I'm pretty sure that is simply to get us to buy another game that we already have, but it looks a little different. So they've got the Simpsons version, they've got Harry Potter version, and, and they, they have a, a video game where you use a DVD, and, and they've got a game you can play on the computer. Uh, they have one that's an uh, electronic game that talks to you. Uh, they have an express game. You can play it. They say you can play the game of Clue in 20 minutes or less with this express game. So if you're looking for something to do in 20 minutes or less. Uh, there's Clue Junior, which is a simplified version of the game for young children. But the, and then this just the year, the Parker Brothers came out with a brand new version of the classic game. And they've, they've changed some of their rooms. Uh, now they have a spa in, the, in this part of the game. Uh, and they've, the suspects are no longer as formal as Miss Scarlet or Colonel Mustard. Now they have first names, Cassandra Scarlet and Jack Mustard. There's some information you want to write down because you want to put that, hang on to that. And, uh, and they've also changed some of the weapons. They have, instead of six weapons in the, in the classic game, they now have nine weapons. And they've added things like a barbell and an axe and a baseball bat and a vial of poison. And, and, the, and the revolver that was in the original game is now a, a, a pistol with a silencer on the end of it. Now, that's updating the game. That's how crimes are committed, right? But the game's still the same. You know, crime's been committed, Mr. Body has been murdered, and you've got to figure out who did it, in what room, and with which weapon. Now, it seems to me there are, there are a number of potential metaphors that we might see in the game of Clue. One metaphor is that life is a mystery, and we're spending our lives trying to figure our way through the mysterious elements of it. Another metaphor related to that is how we find our way through the mystery of life and, and making sure that we're following uh, true clues that are true instead of clues that are false. And so we, you know, I mean, and there are lots of false clues that are thrown at us in life. That's why we put such high value on the scriptures. Tradition, reason, experience, those are important for us to understand what it means to follow God, but ultimately, Ultimately, the one constant truth is the Word of God. 
But I think there's another metaphor to this game. And it's this third metaphor that I want us to think about today. It's a metaphor that, that it's something that's integral to the part, to, the, to what it means to play this game. And it's, it's something that's probably far too common in our everyday lives. It's been a long time since I've seen you. How you doing? Not bad. And yourself? Oh, I considering how crazy things have been around here this time of year. Not bad. I, I do hope things start to slow down a little bit, though. Uh, seriously. So what's the news? Well, oh, did you hear about the big blow-up in the office this week? No. Oh, my goodness. I thought Cliff and Les were going to kill each other. What happened? Oh, you know, I don't know how it started, but let me see. Uh, Les... Accused Cliff of giving him some wrong numbers for a presentation he was putting together. And, and when he finally came around to give the report with the, the false information, the client really gave it oh. to him. Of course, he looked like a fool and, and he looked bad in front of the boss. So uh, he came back to the office and, oh my goodness, he really lit it in Cliff. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed it. Oh, yeah. I heard it got really, really ugly. Oh, yeah. Oh, he called him an idiot, and, and he accused him of sabotaging his position. Oh, oh, and then he screamed something about, it's hard to be a professional when you're working with a bunch of imbeciles. Uh, it was vicious. What was vicious? Oh, uh, Les and Cliff going at it. I heard about that. I heard Les really slammed him in an email. I heard nasty. I heard there was almost a fight at the coffee shop. Really? What, uh, what I heard was that Les was on his cell phone screaming at Cliff while he's getting gas at the Minimart. Yes! Well, that's hilarious because the story that I heard was that, let me get it right, was that Les was texting Cliff some really, um, how should I put it, um, unprintable things uh, while Cliff was at lunch at Subway. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, whatever happened, it sounds like he really freaked out. You know, I've always thought he's a little on edge. Well, I've always suspected Les is jealous of Cliff. What? He always acts like he's the hot stuff, and I think Les is put off by that. You know, that might be, but I wouldn't put it past Cliff to fudge the numbers somehow. Yeah, I I just never trusted that guy. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I always thought that it seemed like he was looking out for himself, Mm -hmm. regardless how it affected the rest of the office. Oh, you got that right. Oh, hey, hey, I gotta go. See you later. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Cliff, uh, I'm really sorry about yesterday. Uh, I had no reason to behave like that. It was uncalled for and very unprofessional. You know, know, Les, I'm the one who should apologize here. Last night I ran those numbers again, and... They were wrong. Um, you know, I, I used this old formula that we had, and because I was in a big hurry, it's in a bad spot. Sorry. I, I thought you had done it on purpose. Why would I do that? I, I thought you were trying to make me look bad. Somebody in the office told me to wash my back that you were gunning for my position. <laughs> Why would I do that? That's crazy. That person doesn't have a clue. 
<laughs> so you're, tell- you're telling me I shouldn't believe everything I hear? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it looks like we were both victimized here. Well, that may be. But I had no excuse to go off on you like that. Hey, hey it's, it's been sorry. a rough week. Man, let's, let's go have coffee. Let's get out of here. I'll treat you. Oh, hey, Susan, how are you? Yeah? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, did you hear about the huge fight between Cliff and Les in the office this week? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, it was crazy. I wish you could have been here to see all the fireworks. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you talk about jealousy and rage. Oh, my goodness. I've never seen anybody so mad at someone in all my life. Yeah. You know, the game of Clue is built on the concept of suspicion. Every room's potential murder scene, every suspect is a uh, potential, every person's a potential suspect, and every weapon's a potential means of committing the crime. Now, I'm fairly certain that, um, that Clue might well be the, the only board game that's ever been made into a full length movie. And it's kind of a funny movie if you watch it, it's very, very clever. But there's a scene in the movie that that takes place in this big old mansion. Of course, it's at night, and of course, there's a storm. And of course, it's raining and thunder and lightning and all the things that you think of, you know, when you do creepy movies. And and they're in this house. They're scared to death because Mr. Body has been killed, and everyone's suspicious of everyone else. They all want to be together. No one wants to be alone. And they, they finally come to the realization that they have to search the house, and they decide to divide up into pairs, and they draw straws. And, and, and the scenes of watching them go through the house, searching, you can just sense the, the, the suspicion in every single one of them. No one trusts anyone else because they're sure that person could be the one who committed the crime. And in the game of Clue, suspicion is what you do. Suspicion is what drives the game. If you're not suspicious, you're not going to do very well at the game. But in real life, suspicion can be awfully dangerous. And it seems to me that this is no more clear in Scripture than in the, uh, the sort of soap opera saga we have with King Saul and young David. 1 Samuel 17 tells the story of, of David's epic battle with Goliath. And, and as David's stone is planted in Goliath's forehead and his lifeless body falls to the earth, the Philistines run and the Israelites chase them. And it's a great victory for Saul and his men. And they come back to, to the cities of Israel and there's a parade everywhere they go. The women are singing and dancing and their song is, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his Tens of thousands. When Saul hears that song, and his mood changes immediately. 
He's not interested in celebrating anymore. Those words stick him deep. And Saul is thinking, why does David, why do they say David slays ten thousands and only me a thousands? And it begins to eat away at his suspicious mind. Saul is certain that David's after nothing less than his throne. And from that moment on, Saul lives in, in, in continual suspicion of David. Verse 9 of chapter 18 says that Saul kept his eye on David. We, we keep our eyes on, on people and things in different ways. We keep an eye on our children because we want to protect them. We keep our eye on the, on the sales ads because we want to get the best buy at the store. We keep our eye on, on somebody young and promising and thinking that maybe sometime down the road to follow their career that maybe sometime we might want to hire them. And, and, and we keep our eye on someone that we feel threatens us. Someone that we're suspicious of. We keep our eye on people because we're jealous and envious and suspicious. And Saul sees David as a threat. The next day, still brooding over the song, Saul makes an attempt on David's life. David eludes Saul's spear, not once, but twice. When that doesn't work, Saul sends David out on a suicide mission. David comes back, the conquering hero again. And every time, Saul's suspicion and jealousy continues to grow. He's fearful of David. He's jealous of David. He's suspicious of David. So eventually, Saul turns the entire Israelite army against David. Now, it's obvious, and you read this, that Saul has some, some deep psychological problems. Some have speculated that Saul suffers from, from uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And maybe so. But his psychological illness doesn't diminish the warning that we ought to heed in his life, in his heart, in his mind. Because suspicion can creep into our lives too. I've seen it in sports. Our team loses and What's the first reaction? Oh, the refs cost us the game. And when they were suspicious, they're, they're on the take, or you know, they like that team better than our team. And, or if that, you know, we can't find that, then we blame We say, well, the other team cheated, or they play dirty. But rarely do we say, you know what, they were just better than us. They outplayed us. They worked harder than we did. And we know suspicious thinking is limited to sports. We can be suspicious at work. Maybe we're afraid that coworkers are undermining us. We catch ourselves thinking, why did they get the best assignments? Why did they get that promotion? How come they got that scholarship? I wonder what corners they cut. I wonder what they had to pay for that. And before we know it, we're, we're enveloped in suspicion. Now, there's a, there's a place for good, healthy Protective suspicion. We, we teach our children to be suspicious of strangers because we want to protect them. And, and we all are glad that, that detectives and, and investigators and are, are suspicious. They couldn't do their job if they weren't. They need to be suspicious. They need to turn over every rock and stone. Uh, they need to, to not believe that everything people say to them is the truth. Their, their job is about trying to be suspicious to get to the answer. But I suspect that it's hard for 
people in those kinds of professions to come home at night and turn off that suspiciousness. I suspect they probably struggle with being suspicious of their family and friends and and seeing things in people's words and actions. And, And probably sometimes it bothers them. that Why can't I just put that away? But they've so trained themselves to be suspicious, it's difficult to put away. And we can do the same thing, even though that's not our profession. We get so wrapped up in being jealous and suspicious that it's hard to not be jealous and suspicious. And in the church, we can be suspicious. Maybe we're suspicious that someone is is undermining our ministry or or that someone is is undermining our authority. Someone is, is talking about us to somebody else in the church. Ironically, we can even be jealous and suspicious of, of other, another person's spirituality. You know, we're, we're upset because, because they are, they're more in tune to God than we are. People see them as more spiritual than they see us, even though we know that they're more open to Christ than we are. Even though we know that they're more spiritually sensitive than we are, even though we know they spend far more time in prayer and the reading of scriptures than, the scripture than we do, even though we can see it, that they're much more willing to, to sacrifice themselves for Christ than we are. But something in us wants to suspect that they aren't what they seem to be. They're just taking spiritual shortcuts. They, they, know, how to, they know how to convince people. And we're not buying it. Isn't that at the heart of Saul's trouble with David? Saul's afraid of David, that David's going to take his throne. And why would Saul think that? Because Saul can tell that David is filled with the Spirit of God. And Saul isn't anymore. How often our jealous suspicions are raised because we see that, that God is, is blessing and using someone else and not us. We make excuses. I mean, of course, we couldn't believe that it might have something to do with our own sinful choices or our lack of trust in God or our unwillingness to give God control of our lives. And in our, in our moments of jealous suspicion, we too often turn to gossip and malicious talk and, and rumor Because somehow we believe that we'll look better if these other people look worse. But jealous suspicion is such a dangerous thing. The writer of Proverbs states, a relaxed attitude lengthens life. Jealousy rots it away. Anger is cruel and and wrath is like a flood. but, But who can survive the destructiveness of jealousy? Those of us who lived through the 1970s and those who have read about the 1970s, how could we, we can't forget the the tragedy that we call Watergate. President Nixon had won a very close 1968 election, but 1972 was nothing like that at all. His presidency seemed strong and and it was growing despite the, the Vietnam War. His lead in the polls never wavered. He won every state except for Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. He had 20 million more votes than George McGovern. He had a 20% lead. There were only five states in the whole election that were even all that close. 
It was so unnecessary. And yet, as we know from history, as reports have come out, that his suspicion, probably paranoia, created the atmosphere that led to the break-in of Democratic headquarters and and the subsequent cover-up. And it was all so unnecessary. But that's what suspicion can do to us. And we can see it in a situation like Watergate. It's much more difficult to identify that jealousy and suspicion in our own lives. Ultimately, jealousy that leads to suspicion eventually leads us to accusations. In fact, in the game of Clue, when you know the solution, the who, the where, and the with what, you say, I'd like to make an accusation. And that's great in the game of Clue. But we're pretty good about making accusations when we're not playing the game of Clue. We say things that hurt those who are closest to us. We brood about injustice. We start devising all kinds of ideas about people that may or may not be true. But our suspicions drive us to accusations. And accusations make supposition seem real. If you think about accusations long enough, we'll begin to believe them. I read about a salesman who was driving on a lonely country road one dark and rainy night, and he had a flat tire, and he opened up his trunk. He didn't have a lug wrench. And he was frustrated about that, and he looked up down the road and saw a light on in a farmhouse out on the porch. So he thought, okay, I'll make my way down there, and surely this farmer will have a lug wrench that, wrench that I can borrow. So he's making his way through this driving rain, and, and as he's getting close to the house, he's, he's thinking to himself, boy, it is late at night, and that farmer's probably asleep in his warm, dry bed, and maybe he won't answer the door. And if he did, he's, he's probably going to be angry at being awakened in the middle of the night, and, and he keeps making his way down this rainy path, and, and he's soaked to the skin, and he keeps thinking about it, and, and he's thinking, well, if he does answer the door, he's probably going to say, hey, what's the big idea waking me up in the middle of the night? And and he thought, and that may kind of made the salesman angry. And, and he said, what right the farmer have to refuse me the help that I need? I just need a lug wrench. And after all, I'm stranded here in the middle of nowhere. I'm soaked to the skin. The farmer, he's a selfish jerk. I can't believe it. And the salesman finally reached the door, and he pounds on the door, and a light goes on, and window goes up, and a voice comes out. Who is it? And the salesman looked up and says, you know good and well who it is. And I wouldn't use your lug wrench if it was the last one on earth. And he turned and walked down the rest of the road. You know, we laugh at that. We say, man, the guy's crazy. But has it ever happened? We allow stuff to get into our minds. Suspicion breeds accusation and things that we don't even know if they're true seem true. And we act on them. As we saw in the skit, once a rumor takes hold, once gossip is spoken, once the ideas get into our heads, it's difficult to stop them. And ultimately, our unhealthy, suspicious nature, and the jealousy and the insecurity and the fear that feeds it, really is a spiritual issue. Paul talks to Timothy about people who are committed to uh, who are not committed to the true word of God. 
And he said it stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, fighting, slander, and evil suspicions. And the psalmist declares of his enemies, they don't speak peaceably, but devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. Surely the most damaging proof of of all of this and the danger of accusations is that that kind of behavior mirrors not the mind and the heart of God, but the mind and the heart of the evil one. Scripture calls him the accuser. Zechariah tells of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and being accused by Satan. And John talks in Revelation about the accuser being thrown down. And it ought to, be, it ought to concern us to be categorized in that same light. So what do we do about it? What do we do to combat this suspicious nature with which we struggle? I think for one thing, we need to be honest about our shortcomings. We like to cover over our own sin. We like to ignore our own problems, and that's one of the reasons we blame other people. We tend to be jealous and suspicious because we've convinced ourselves that there's nothing wrong with me. I didn't have anything to do with this relationship breaking down. And what that person has, I ought to have anyway. And we're convinced that we're okay. And what we really need is some honest self-assessment. And one of the unique elements of Clue is that, is that whatever character you're playing, Professor Plum or Mrs. Peacock or whoever, whatever character you're playing, your, your character has just as much a chance of being a suspect as anybody else's character. And if you try to play the game thinking that your character could never be a suspect you're going to end up making a lot of false accusations. And I wonder if one of the reasons suspicion creeps in and and accusations are made is because we aren't willing to really look at ourselves and ask, what part did I play in this problem? Is it possible that we're as much to blame for our jealousy and our suspicion as anyone else? Is it possible that our suspicion toward this other person is simply the result of our own insecurity, our own mistakes, our own sinful attitudes? Is it possible that what God is asking first is that we take responsibility for ourselves? Getting to that first step of saying, it's my fault leads us to then ask, what am I doing to make this worse? What can I do to make it better? And to repent before God for our jealousy, our suspicions, our accusations. And maybe what we need to do is to remember that people in the past are not people in the present. One thing is about the game of Clue, and a lot of games, but this game, that this game of, of detection and, and mystery, is that when the game is over and you start another game, nothing carries over. The other game is done. It's over with. And, and all the clues that were a part of that game don't mean anything now. Everything starts brand new again. And sometimes... We're suspicious because of what's happened in previous situations where we were hurt deeply by someone. 
And now our eyes are tinted to look for suspicious behavior. We don't trust. We project onto others the the behavior of someone from the past. But if we're ever going to have healthy relationships, somehow we have to ask God to help us to not do that. Somehow we have to ask God to help us to trust that this new relationship doesn't have to be the same as an old one. And trust is imperative, not just in our relationship with each other, but our relationship with God. Don't think that you can be suspicious of people and not be suspicious of God. John tells us in his first epistle that how you treat other people is a reflection of how you treat God. How you feel about other people is a reflection of how you feel about God. And we often project onto God the pains that other people do to us. And it causes us to not want to trust God either. We say, God, how come they got to do that and I didn't? I guess you're not the loving God that I thought you were. I always suspected that. Or, or God, how come I'm not getting what what I believe I want? I guess you're not as good as everyone said. We need to hear God's message of unconditional love and mercy that he will never leave us or forsake us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we can cast all our anxieties and our suspicions and our jealousies on him because he cares for us. And it's on him that everything rests. Because it's in him that we will only find security that we need. Every other source of security in which we think we can found our lives is going to disappoint us. It's either going to fall apart or it's going to be taken away or it's going to disappear. But everything of this world in which we place our security is going to disappoint us. And that's one of the reasons we struggle so much with jealousy and suspicion is because we feel like our security is threatened. I mean, that's what Saul Saul thought. My whole life is wrapped up in being king. And when when he felt that was being threatened, claws came out and the swords began, the spears began to fly. And it was because his security was no longer in God. And if you and I are going to ever break the cycle and and the bonds of suspicion and jealousy and accusation. It's got to be because our security is in Christ and Christ alone. And in him, it can be broken. Now, I have officiated at, I don't know, I didn't count, but I would guess probably close to 100 weddings in my time as a pastor. And... um, Every wedding in some way or another is memorable. Most of the weddings are memorable because this this bride and groom are are standing there and you've worked through a lot of stuff with them. You've spent a lot of time with them and you care about them and you see see them making their vows to each other and and giving themselves in love and giving their lives to each other. And and that in and of itself makes the moment so memorable. There are other times when they're memorable because something out of the ordinary happens. Sometimes it's because of something someone has done that makes you remember it. 
But more often than not, I found the weddings I've done are memorable because of something someone said. I was officiating at a wedding 15, 20 years ago. And um, I, I don't think I've ever encountered a groom more nervous than the groom at this wedding. Even at the rehearsal, he was having trouble getting out the words of the vows, even as I was feeding them to him. And, and it began to it worried me a little bit. I'm thinking, man, if he's out of it now on Friday night, what's it going to be like Saturday afternoon? He just sort of had this glassy-eyed look, and I'm thinking, oh, boy. So Saturday afternoon, we come to the ceremony. Things are going fine, and, and he start, I'm starting to go through the vows with him, and I realize that I can tell by the look in his eyes he's sort of going in and out. Me sweating profusely. And, and I could just tell that he wasn't getting it. It wasn't getting through to him. And we're going through the vows, and, and I'm, I'm trying to enunciate even more than I normally do to so make sure he hears what I say. And we get to the place in the vows where I say to him, and he says to, her, to his bride, For all of my days, I will always respect you. And he looked at his bride, stared her straight in the eye, his hands shaking a little bit, and said, for all of my days, I will always suspect you. (laughs) He tried to correct himself, but it was way too late. (laughs) And I'm usually pretty good at formal occasions of just kind of holding it, but I, I lost it there too. We were all laughing. Do you think it's possible that somewhere deep inside of us, our insecurities, our fears, because we don't really have Christ at the center, that maybe we live a lot more often with, with all of my life, I suspect you, than we ought to. I want to tell you today, Christ wants to free us from those bonds. He wants to set us free from jealousy and suspicion and accusations that bind us and tear us apart. And give us hope and joy and fullness of relationship with one another and with him. I know that's what God wants for you and for me. Let's take a moment and ask him to do that in us. Gracious Father, we are far too often jealous and suspicious and make accusations and form opinions in our minds about others and about you that have no basis in fact. Forgive us. Forgive us. Father, help us to commit again today what you central. And we ask that you will set us free from these bonds on these chains through the grace of Christ Jesus.